Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We'll read the opening three verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. We're starting a new series today on the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it uh, uh, Mark's Account of the Master of Men. And uh, the study in our key groups will be coordinated with this so that you'll be studying the passage the week previous to what I preach on the following Sunday. Uh, sometimes it won't work out exactly that way, and we'll have to preach on it on Sunday night or something else. But uh, generally, it'll work out that way. And uh, so, uh, let me urge you to uh, be reading in Mark and also to involve yourself in a K-group, if you can, this fall, and uh, be studying along as we uh, go through the gospel. We won't cover every verse. Uh, we'll hit the high points, and, uh, uh, but uh, we will cover the entire book this fall. Mark, John Mark, was a near relative of Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's associate and uh, was the one who actually uh, uh, got Paul to start teaching at Antioch. And then he and Paul uh, went on a missionary journey to Cyprus. Barnabas wanted to take his uh, young relative, John Mark, and they did. But when the going got tough, John Mark went back. You read about that in Acts 13, uh, where when they came to Persia, uh, Perga, <clears throat> John Mark quit. Later, when it came time to take a follow-up mission trip, the second missionary journey, Barnabas uh, said to Paul, let's, let's take Mark again. I believe he's learned his lesson and he's uh, ready to uh, tough it out. Paul said, no. No, we can't depend on Mark. I'm not willing to take him back. Well, the, the dispute was so strong between the two of them that they split up, and Barnabas went back to Cyprus and took Mark, and uh, Paul took Silas and went on his second missionary journey. But later, <clears throat> as you read Paul's epistles, you find that he's changed his attitude and his feelings about Mark. Mark has proved himself. And so he speaks of Mark as a valued fellow laborer in the gospel. And uh, then uh, when he writes to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, he asks Timothy to bring Mark with him uh, that, uh, and to come to see him that uh, Mark was useful to him. Mark also had a close uh, relationship with Peter. Peter refers to Mark in First Peter, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, as my son Marcus. I don't think he was a literal son, but uh, very close, maybe. Maybe Peter led Mark to Christ. We don't know. Many feel that uh, Peter is the source of much of Mark's in information as Mark writes his account of the life of Christ and, of course, the particular the ministry of Christ. 
And so you could uh, almost maybe call this the Gospel of Peter. Some years ago, Dr. E.V. Rue, a famous uh, world-renowned scholar, translated Homer into modern English. And then his publisher wanted him to translate the Gospels. Uh, when Rue's son heard about it, uh, he was very interested. Rue had been an agnostic all of his life. He was 60 years old now. The son said, well, it'll be interesting to see what Father makes of the Gospels, and it'll be more interesting to see what the Gospels make of Father. He didn't have to wait very long. Within a year, Dr. Rue had become a committed Christian. And that's Mark's object, uh, to introduce us to Jesus Christ and to have Christ make us after his own image. Well, we have the... <clears throat> Designation for this book in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the glad tidings. Gospel, the old English word, God's spell. Glad tidings from the Greek word euangelion. Uh, the incredible tidings of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, <clears throat> we have his appearance as Savior, the history of this appearance, the history of his ministry, of uh, his saving work, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news that the creator of the universe has become a man. <laughs> Is there any news like that? Uh, we've had uh, good news from Russia during the past several weeks, haven't we? The Communist Party uh, no longer authorized. It's authorized here in America, but not authorized over there. That's interesting. Uh, but that's as good as that is. That's nothing compared to the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, he speaks of the preparation by John the Baptist for Jesus' coming. In verse 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before me. He's quoting first from Malachi, and then he'll quote from Isaiah. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, written around 400 B.C., chapter 3, verse 1. God the Father is speaking to God the Son. And he says, I will send my messenger before thy face to prepare your way. God says, I'll send one who will prepare your way. And then uh, John, uh, then uh, uh, Mark quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, where Isaiah says, I heard the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And this, too, is a, a prophecy of one who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. As you read on in that chapter in Isaiah, and Isaiah lived 700 B.C., it says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every hill shall be made low. Prepare a highway for our God. That's the language of building a road where you knock the tops off the mountains and 
bring up the valleys, and you prepare a highway. And the sense here is, this is addressed to people. Remove obstacles uh, so the Lord can travel down this road, a highway for our God. It says, I heard the voice of one crying in the wilderness, a literal and moral wilderness. Well, he tells about the fulfillment of that. Verse 4, John, John the Baptist, did baptize in the wilderness. John started his ministry there on the western shore of the Dead Sea, a rugged wasteland, fulfilling this 400-year-old and 700-year-old prophecy about one who would prepare the way. What did he preach? It says, he baptized in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He called on men to acknowledge their sin and to repent, to turn from their sin, and as an indication of their uh, need of cleansing to be baptized. Now, this was unique. This was innovative, where Jews were called on to be baptized. There was a tremendous response. Verse 5, There went out unto him all the land of Judea. And they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Multitudes. He was the Billy Graham of the day. As men flocked to hear uh, this preacher. He didn't do any miracles, we're told. No healings. He just called on men to repent. But God's anointing was on him. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. You say, this is the New Testament. That's right. This is the transition point where the old is ending and the new is coming. And it says, there hath not been born of woman greater than John. John the Baptist was the greatest of the old. But he that's least in the kingdom, the new phase that was being ushered in, is greater than John. Well, uh, the people responded. Notice how John was clothed in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins. He did eat locusts and wild honey. He reminds you of someone, an Old Testament prophet, Elijah. And he was Elijah to come. The Bible, the Old Testament ended with a reference to the fact that God would send Elijah the prophet, who'd been dead for hundreds of years when that prophecy was made. He would send him to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. John was that Elijah who had come. The angel who announced to his father, Zechariah, the old priest, that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a baby, said, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. What else did he preach? Verse 7. He preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. He compares himself to this one that he's preparing the way for. And he says, He's so much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. And he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. John says, I wash you externally with water as a symbol, but he'll give you the reality, the Holy Spirit. Well, you read where Jesus told his disciples to 
remain in Jerusalem until they received the baptism of the Spirit, the promised Spirit. He said, I will ascend to the Father, and I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another comforter, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, he hath been with you, shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. He would go to the Father, and he would pray the Father, and the Father would send this greater outpouring of the Spirit of God. It would be Christ coming through the Spirit to dwell within believers. We live in the age of the Spirit. That, that was fulfilled at the day of Pentecost and has been being fulfilled ever since. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized with the Spirit of God. Jesus has baptized you with His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:13. <clears throat> By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. And have all been made to drink of that one Spirit. Christ <clears throat> incorporates us into his body by uniting his Holy Spirit with our human spirit as he lives within us and begins to inwardly change us. Now, that inner baptism of the Spirit is symbolized by outward baptism. But the two don't have to go together. Uh, he doesn't necessarily do the one at the time of the other. Have you been baptized with the Spirit? Has a change come into your life? Uh, that's what Jesus came to do. Tremendous, tremendous thing. We live in the age of the Spirit. Now, you need to learn to walk in the Spirit. You need to take uh, what you have been given if you're a Christian and learn to appropriate the power of the Spirit. Learn to... Daily, ask the Spirit to fill and control us and yield to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit day by day. But each Christian has been baptized with the Spirit. Well, he compares them <clears throat> to their person and to their work. He is so much greater than I, and he will baptize with the Spirit, says John. At this point, Jesus comes to John and submits to baptism. In uh, verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Now, this was a baptism for, uh, of repentance for remission of sin. <clears throat> what did Jesus have to repent of? Nothing. Nothing. Well, why should he be baptized? That's the question John asked him when he came. Uh, you read uh, in the other Gospels where uh, John says in Matthew 3, he says, I need to be baptized of you. Comest thou to me? And Jesus said, Suffer it to be so for now, for thus it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was not a sinner, but you and I are sinners. And he would identify with us. He would be numbered with the transgressors. Here's the first uh, intimation in his public ministry that he was going to take our guilt upon himself, be our substitute. Of course, this led to the cross, the ultimate identification where he, was, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
our guilt would be laid upon him, and he'd be punished in our stead. And his perfect righteousness, his perfect record would be given to us as a gift when we acknowledged our sin, turned from it, placed our trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died for us. John baptizes him, and as he comes up out of Jordan, two signs occur. Verse 10, straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. A dove, literal dove, descends and rests on Jesus. A symbol of the Spirit of God coming upon him at this point. Now, he already had the Spirit of God. Uh, but he would be equipped with the Spirit now for his public ministry. He needed such equipment. He was a man. And as man, he needed the Spirit of God, to equip his human nature to carry out his assignment. He was also God, but don't forget his humanity along with his divinity. Uh, you and I need the Spirit of God to equip us to carry out the task assigned to us. Well, Jesus needed that also. And then there's this affirmation from heaven. As God the Father tests publicly... This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father attests him as his Son and as the Messiah. Immediately, Satan comes, or Jesus is propelled by the Father to confront Satan. The, the contest is joined right now. And uh, verse 12, immediately... The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, driveth him into the wilderness. The New American Standard says, impelled him. He's constrained. Now, the first great battle is enjoined. First he fasts, though, for 40 days. He's without food. And then Satan comes into the wilderness. John doesn't describe that in detail. You have it in Matthew 4 and so on, but... You remember that Satan comes to Jesus and he says, If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. He tempts him to act independently of his Father, to use his miraculous powers to relieve his hunger. And Jesus refuses. He says, No, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I will trust my Father. I will obey my Father. He put me in this situation. If he wants me fed, he can feed me. I won't act independently as Adam acted. Remember the first great contest of a man when Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve? Adam was in much better shape to withstand the temptation. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Uh, how will Jesus do in this contest? Satan takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, uh, You're going to trust your father? Prove it. Jump off. And then Satan quotes Scripture, quotes the 91st Psalm. 
Hasn't he said he would give his angels charge over you that they would catch you up lest you dashed your foot against a stone? If you trust him, prove it and jump off. Jesus says, no. Again, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That wouldn't be trust. <clears throat> jump off the temple trusting the angels to look after me. That would be presumption. There's a difference between faith and presumption. You get... You get the balance of Scripture as you compare Scripture with Scripture. You interpret Scripture by Scripture. Every cult that ever came along said, it is written. What's the answer to the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or any of the other cults? The answer is, again, it is written. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. Then Satan shows him all the kingdoms of this world. And Satan is the God of this world, little g. The whole world lieth in the wicked one. We all, says Paul, walked according to the course of this world, according to the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. Satan isn't in absolute control. God is in absolute control. But Satan controls all who are in his kingdom which is the mass of men, the majority of men. And Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms and all the pomp and the glory of this world. He says, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give all these to you. And Jesus said, no. Again, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Get thee hence, Satan. And he conquers Satan. The first great contest there is joined, and Jesus doesn't yield as Adam yielded, but he conquers temptation. Adam yielded. You and I yield, don't we? So often, we give in to temptation in one form or another. Why do we do that? Well, Satan's very shrewd and Satan's very strong. But we have an enemy within the gates that Jesus didn't have. When Adam sinned, and Adam didn't have the enemy within the gates, but when he sinned, the whole race descending from him was plunged into darkness spiritually. So that as we come into this world, our minds are darkened, our hearts are evil. Out of the heart, said Jesus, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries. All these things come from within and defile the man. That's why we need a new heart. But even when we have a new heart, we still have the old sinful nature, not nearly as strong. Its back's been broken, but it's still there. It's called the flesh. And uh, it trips us up. Paul talks about it. He says, The good that I would, I do not. That which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am. He says, When I would do good, I find that evil is present with me. I find a law within my members, warring against my new nature, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me in kept into captivity to this principle within of sin and death. Paul speaks of that struggle in Romans 7. In the Nuremberg trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of the men who had been a prisoner in Auschwitz was a prime witness against Eichmann, uh, a man by the name of Yahil Dinner. 
And when he went into the courtroom and saw Eichmann for the first time in 20 years, Denier burst into sobs and, and sobbed uncontrollably and then fainted. Later, he was being interviewed by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. And Mike Wallace said, why did you faint? Why did you burst into tears? Were you afraid of the man still or what? He said, no. I was overwhelmed when I saw him with the fact that he was just an ordinary man. Just like the rest of us. And it dawned on me if he, an ordinary man, could do the evil things he did, then I could do them. There's an Adolf Eichmann in me and in all of us, exactly. All of us have the enemy within the gates, the flesh, and no telling what we're capable of under certain circumstances. Well, uh, Jesus didn't have that enemy within the gates, and he withstands the temptation and wins this first great battle. As we go through the book, we'll see other points where there's confrontation with Satan. But he won a great victory here. Well, the angels now come and minister to Jesus. He's weak. He needs it. In uh, verse 13, he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Then you have the proclamation by Jesus of the kingdom. In verse 14, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. John confronts Herod with the unlawfulness of his divorce and his marriage to his sister-in-law. And Herodias is furious. She would kill him. John is thrown in prison by Herod, really, to protect him from Herodias. At that point, Jesus comes into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, he proclaims the good news that that kingdom that the Old Testament had prophesied would come, the Messiah's kingdom, has started. The good news that the kingdom is at hand, it's being fulfilled. Uh, that thing that had been proclaimed by all of the prophets. You remember uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he sees this giant colossus with a head of gold and, and a breast of silver and uh, thighs of brass and feet of iron and clay. And then he sees a stone cut without hands that topples the Colossus over and then becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. He's very disturbed by his dream, and Daniel interprets his dream. And he said, O king, uh, that Colossus represents four empires that will come. You're the head. You're the head of gold. Your empire, the Babylonian empire. And then the silver uh, that's another empire that will come after you. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire didn't identify at that point. Then there would be a third, the Grecian Empire, and then a fourth, the Roman Empire. He said, in the days of that fourth empire, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will topple every other kingdom. 
and will become a mountain and fill the whole earth. Well, in the fourth empire, Jesus of Nazareth came in the days of Caesar, and he founded a kingdom that has filled the whole earth. And here we are 2,000 years later, the other side of the world, coming into that kingdom. The people of that day looked for a material kingdom, a king who'd come, raise an army, throw off the Roman yoke. It wasn't that kind of kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. It's a different kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom where he reigns in the hearts of men. If he's king in you, you're in his kingdom. That's the kind of kingdom he would found. It'd be a new phase of God's reign among men. So that's at hand. Jesus proclaims the good news that that kingdom has now started. And the king is here. And he calls men to repentance and belief in the gospel. Verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. John preached repentance. Now Jesus preaches repentance. What is repentance? Now, well, the best definition you'll ever find of it is in the Shorter Catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You, you see your sin, but you see God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And you turn from your sin purposing to obey God. That's repentance. Uh, John Murray, in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he was professor of systematic theology at uh, Westminster Seminary until his death. He talks about repentance and faith in a chapter, and he says there are two sides of a coin. He says it's impossible to disentangle repentance and faith. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Repentance consists essentially in a change of heart and mind and will. It says that particularly respects four things. It's a change of mind respecting God, respecting ourselves, respecting sin, respecting righteousness. You know, prior to repentance, you think of God as uh, the good Lord. The good Lord would never send anyone to hell, probably. Certainly not you. The good Lord understands your little sins, and he's not too upset with them. You see, there's no such being in the universe as the good Lord. The good Lord and the God of the Bible are two different people. The God of the Bible does send men to hell. And the God of the Bible doesn't overlook your little sins. They're mountainous. And once you begin to understand that, you have a whole different perspective about God, about yourself, about your sin. And you grieve over it. And you want to do his will. Murray says, since it's a change of mind with reference to sin, it's a change of mind with reference to particular sins, sins in all of their individuality which belong to our sins. It's a repentance about my particular sins. As a 
recent book that's been written by John White, a Christian psychiatrist, Changing on the Inside, as a study of repentance. And uh, he talks about a case history. Chuck Colson. You remember Chuck Colson was the, one of uh, Nixon's men and uh, wound up going to prison in Watergate. Well, <clears throat> prior to going to prison, Colson called on a business friend, Tom Phillips. And as he talked with Phillips, he, under, he, he saw a dramatic change in Phillips from when he'd known him before. And he asked him uh, about the change, and Phillips began to witness to him about Jesus Christ and read him a section out of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, a chapter on pride. And as he read that chapter, Colson says, I could feel a flush coming into my face and a curious burning sensation that made the night seem even warmer. Lewis's words seemed to pound right at me. Suddenly I felt naked and unclean. My defense is gone. I was exposed, unprotected, for Lewis's words were describing me. It was painful, agony. He didn't let Phillips know that. He, Phillips gave him the book, and he left. Drove off and drove a few blocks, pulled over the side of the road, and wept uncontrollably. And uh, he says, I, I forgot about my pretenses, my fears of being weak, and as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. And then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling as it went. I prayed my first real prayer, God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I repeated it over and over. I didn't know what else to say. Now, he wasn't a Christian yet. He didn't know about Jesus, really. He didn't understand how God forgave sinners. He began to read C.S. Lewis's book and soon became a Christian. But notice that change of attitude, a deep change, a lasting change. Colson now is the head of prison fellowship, tremendous prison ministry. Well, <clears throat> has something like that happened in your life? Not You don't have to have the weeping and so on, but has a great change come? Faith, he said, believe the gospel. Now, the gospel of the kingdom... Uh, the gospel is not Christ died for our sins yet at that point. He had not yet died. It was the good news that the kingdom was at hand and the king was here. As he goes on, it becomes, and the king died for us. Incredible good news. That our sins are paid for and that all we have to do is really surrender to him and really trust in him. And we're in the kingdom. And our sins are forgiven. Uh, we're new creatures. Well, what about it? This gospel of the Son of God, the good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's old hat to us. But you know, there, there are hundreds and thousands of people around us that don't know about Jesus. They're like Colson. <laughs> they grew up in America. But they don't know. They don't know they've got to repent. They believe in the good Lord. It doesn't even exist. <clears throat> uh, they need to be confronted. 
by a change in your life. They need to rub shoulders with somebody who's different. And then they need somebody who can communicate this like Tom Phillips was able to communicate it to Colson. Are you able to do that? That's why we're here. That's why we teach EE, Evangelism Explosion, train you how to do that. That's how we have K groups, so you can invite friends and expose them to these truths and grow yourself. What astounding things and how unknown around the world. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, 2,000 years ago this happened. And a great portion of the world doesn't know about Jesus Christ. That's why we send missionaries. Um, Have you experienced the baptism that Jesus gives? Are you in the kingdom of God? Is he your king? Only through repentance and faith can we enter this kingdom. So Jesus calls men and women to a radical decision. Have you made it? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though no one join me, yet still I'll follow. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Have you made that kind of a choice? Let's pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, have you made that choice? And if so, are you sharing this incredible good news? And do you realize how needy the world around us and around the world is? If you've never made this commitment, and no great change has come into your life, uh, are you prepared to repent and to put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God? Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I do repent. I turn from my particular sins. And I trust you to cleanse me, to baptize me with your Spirit. Amen.